Hello listeners, this is your host Annabelle Higgins and welcome to this week's episode of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today I'll be talking with the lovely Alice Bloomer. Alice is a graduate of Drama Studio London and Roseburford Foundation acting course. During the pandemic, Alice produced a serialised production of Cymbeline to give her and her friends acting work during the pandemic. Prior to that, they dabbled in podcasts, writing brief 20 to 30 minute summaries of Shakespeare's plays to help out struggling GCSE students and people who wanted to see a play but didn't know where to start. They are currently getting a master's in social work, but will one day return to the theatre. Thank you so much for joining me, Alice. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Annabelle. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. It means a lot. Alice and I are kind of watch buddies at the Globe. So whenever we see each other in the Groundlings section, we just go, hi, hi, we meet up and we just get totally enamored with every production. Yeah, we get excited together and it, it's, it's amazing. So Alice, my first question for you is, how did you get into Shakespeare? Oh gosh, um, I mean, it, I can't remember what came first. I know I grew up watching Kenneth Branagh as much to do about nothing. Um, as a kid, my sister and I would sort of like always say, you know, I didn't always know exactly what was going on in the whole thing because it came out when I was quite young. But like, remember, I remember wanting the sort of dresses that all the women wear wore because they look really comfy and cool. And the, every summer, a theatre company would produce a, a sort of play in the summer. They'd sort of build a stage at a park near us, um, like a couple of towns over. And they got, you know, really talented New York actors because I grew up in America to come and put on a Shakespeare play over the summer for like two weeks. Um, and so I'd go to that every summer. And again, like, I, I can't remember how old I was when I started doing this. I was quite young, probably about five or six. And I didn't always understand everything that was going on, but I always just remember loving it, loving the atmosphere, loving the Shakespeare. And it was never something that was frightening or too much or too, like the language never really felt, like, you know, the, the language never felt like a barrier in terms of whether I could enjoy it or not. I never, I didn't always understand what every word meant, but I, I understood enough of it to get the plot if it was done well. And I liked the scenery and I liked the stories. And then I remember, you know, I had a really good sixth grade teacher and we read Midsummer Night's Dream. And, you know, obviously we all got, she was a great teacher. So she got us up and, and, and we read it out loud and, and, you know, in front of, we all sort of changed parts and everything. And then she knew that I loved Shakespeare at that point. You know, I was sort of 10 years old. So she took me and a few other students into New York City and we saw a production of Henry IV, I think it was part one, in a black box theatre in New York City. And I just remember thinking, this is so cool. And after that, I was like, I, I just loved it. There was, yeah. So that's about, that's, yeah, that's how I fell in love. Seeing Shakespeare on stage at a young age is transformative. It is. You know, the first time I saw him staged was when I was 12. I was on a school trip at the Globe. That experience is going to stay with me forever. It was magical. It, the Globe Theatre itself. Yeah, is incredible. I mean, I don't think you forget your first Globe experience. It's just, it's such a unique and beautiful space. I, I would give almost anything to go back to my, I mean, I cannot regret the the what I saw as a kid but I'd love to be able to go back uh, to my childhood and come to the globe as a kid and experience it from a child's perspective because that's got to be like remarkable so yeah so Alice so Annabelle the first character we'll be talking about is your all-time favorite Shakespeare character 
And most importantly, I'd love for you to tell me why. So this is a tricky one. And um, I'm going to I'm going to give you my answer and then I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night tonight and say, no, wait, I I want a different one. I want a different choice because there's so many good ones. There's so many. He's written so many incredible characters. He's he's the ultimate humanist and and his characters are so relatable. And I feel like I relate to different or I, I love different ones for different reasons at different times. Um, and so I've, I've, I've chosen Cordelia and the Fall because you could say they're one person because she goes through battle after battle she battles her father she just she just wants to be honest and she doesn't really know she doesn't have the words all the time to say the things that she wants to until she's no longer herself as soon as she's no longer Cordelia King Lear's daughter she finally finds the words to say all the things that she feels and she finds that relationship with her father that she never really had and I think that's incredible and I think that's something that you know we all experience is, is that sometimes that inability to to say how we feel until we're in a different position or have a different relationship with somebody. Cordelia she's incredible and, and she is so she's so strong because she she loses everything and still has the strength to go back and support her father through a very difficult time and I think that's a really that's a really difficult thing to be able to do and I really respect that especially when so many of Shakespeare's characters have these often have ulterior motives they they're doing things because they want this or that you know you're off they they want to get a certain thing out of a situation and Cordelia really just wants to have that relationship with her father that she lost when she found that she didn't have the words to talk to him so yeah I think you know there's so there's so many great characters but I think Cordelia's just Cordelia and the Fool together make this incredibly kind and powerful character that I I I I love. Yeah. And they present a really interesting dichotomy, I think, between the two of them. Because I mean the fool is in a position, the role of a fool was to amuse people by making by telling these like candid truths, these saying these not necessarily kind things, but often very true in Shakespeare's plays. They could say that and they wouldn't get punished for it. But Cordelia... Yeah, because they were the fool. Yeah, but Cordelia, when she's honest with her father... She gets punished. Yeah, she gets punished. And so I love that Cordelia finds her voice. Yeah, she turns into the fool and she finds her voice. Um, And that's what I like. You know, when I sort of said, okay, well, what character is your favourite? I I almost went with all of the fools because they are are the ones who, throughout the canon, um, obviously there are different clowns there are different fools but the fool is the one that can tell the truth the fool sort of says it how it is you can look at feste you can look at i can't think of any feste is the first one that comes to mind but they're the one that you know the fools are the ones that tell the truth and and they're they're a really key part of the stories the 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 truth tellers because they challenge the other characters they push them out of their comfort zone they push them to sort of accept difficult things about themselves as well and they they hold a mirror up to those characters you know the fool holds a mirror up to Leah and says this is this is who you are you're you know I'm not a fool you're a fool 
you know, you, you sort of you took your crown and you gave it to your children. Why did you and you expected you expected some, you know, you expected good things to come of this. Why? Exactly. And she couldn't do, you know, you couldn't do that as uh, she couldn't do that as Cordelia. But the fact that she was also willing and again, you know, this this is specifically this interpretation. And I understand not not everybody's going to be on board with the Cordelia for one person. But the fact if you do interpret it this way, that Cordelia chose after being banished by her father to go back to him and spend that time with him is kind of incredible. Yeah. And and really difficult to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put past the what you've done to me and how you've sort of changed everything for me. You, you could say ruined her life. You could say saved her life, obviously, because people she was supposed to marry, maybe not the greatest of people. France took her on as is, whereas the others wouldn't take her without a dowry. Yeah. Burgundy loved her for the respects of fortune, I believe that's the line. Yeah. And and France sort of saying that utmost rich being poor, Cordelia, that utmost rich being poor, you know, that, that sort of France being that person that says you are richer because of what you've done. So, you know, you could say he did save her in that sense. But the fact that and may, maybe that is why she goes back and says, you know what, actually, thanks to you, I'm with somebody who genuinely cares about me for me and not for my dowry, not for my money. So I am then going to show you what it can be like to be loved, uh, not for the fact that you are a king and you are all powerful, but the fact that you are my father and I love you for that. And I think, you know, that's that's an incredible position for her to take and to be in. And to be willing to um, to go on that journey with him, and it's not an easy journey. They, you know, they sleep outside, they battle the elements, and and when you're when you're up there, when you're experiencing it, for me, especially at the Globe, I I experienced a peak of a heat wave, but you're still cold with them, and and that feeling of the cold when they're out there and. You, you connect with that and you see that and you, you you understand that. And I think Cordelia, you know, everybody says, oh, Hamlet's the most human because of this. Or so, you know, these different characters are human because of various reasons. And everybody has their reason for connecting with specific people. But it's it's Cordelia's heart that I think I respect the most. I mean, I have two points about the love test at the beginning of the play. So first of all, Leo's making this into a kind of exchange. You give me your love, I'll give you the kingdom. If you want, yeah, if you want your rights as my heirs, you've got to, uh, I believe Macbeth in his play calls it, I think, mouth honour, something like that. Sounds about right. You've got to pay lip service. Yeah, paying lip service, exactly. Yeah, if you want to do this, you've got to humble yourselves, almost degrade yourselves. Such a base level of flattery. He makes it, yeah, he makes it an exchange. And I mean, love should be given freely. It shouldn't, it shouldn't bought and sold. Yeah, especially parental love. Oh, e- exactly. Especially parental love. And that's why when Cordelia says nothing, my lord, that means. Yeah, I- Cordelia sort of says, you know, it, it, and in a way, you know, there's, there's so many ways I could see that, you know, I, I could see that as either I can't quantify the love I have for you, or she's the kind of person that doesn't have that ability to speak feelings into words and I think that's you know that's another layer to Cordelia that you could look at is is just the kind of person that doesn't have the kind of communication skills 
or at least not in that moment when everybody's watching you doesn't have those kind of communication skills that that are needed to say the to, to pay the lip service and and her sort of saying well you shouldn't you know that what why 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 should I have to say these things to you in order to get your kingdom why why is that what's important is it isn't our love you know isn't the love that I've shown you over the years throughout my childhood is that not enough and I think yeah that that's just a really dynamic character right there that he's that Shakespeare's created and I love that yeah it's brilliant and she acknowledges she acknowledges the societal context that she lives in because at the time uh, at the time in which Shakespeare wrote when a woman got married the husband became the main figure not mm -hmm. the father she owed her love she owed everything to her husband Cordelia is at that point in her life she is about to become uh, a married woman she is about to yeah be betrothed be married she's about to become a woman I don't know I want to say a woman of society in a bigger sense because married women that was the norm that was that was not well, exactly and and yeah and then if she, you know she got married and all of her all of her father's land all of her father's titles wouldn't go to her they would go to her husband yeah and what you know what does that say also about you know did does she not want to did she she's given she he would give these th this land these titles away to these two people who again love power and money and don't uh, only only wanted cordelia because of power and money and did cordelia maybe want to keep that for herself or did cordelia just not have the language to say that and that's why she, and there's so many avenues that you can explore and i think again that's another reason why i love her is because you can you can say, oh, she's manipulative and she knew she'd sort of get the kingdoms in the end because the two sisters would sort of self-destruct. She didn't know that she would die. Or you could say that she did it out of love for her father. You could say that you could, you know, you, you could you could explore so many different avenues with Cordelia that I think there's such depth to her. Like there is with any character in Shakespeare's canon, really, but her her journey strikes me as, as so fascinating because yeah, she, regardless of whether or not she's the fool, she does go on this journey and she does return, it, it, take out the fool. She returns to fight her two sisters to save the country. Yeah. And she didn't have to do that. She could have stayed in France and moved on, lived her life peacefully and just been like, you know what? My dad disowned me. I disown him. I'm going to live out my life peacefully with France in this new kingdom that with a, with a husband that respects me and, and I'm not saying that everybody should do that you know oh you know if your parent does something terrible to you you should forgive them and you know fight for them but I think it's just a really interesting journey that she goes on for then Lear to realize the mistakes he's made and to apologize for the mistakes he's made and for her to apologize for the mistakes that she's made. And that scene, it it destroyed me and still does. It destroys me every time I see it and every time I read it, that reunion, that time they come together and they're like, we're gonna put, we, we, Leah says, I messed up. Cordelia says, I love you anyway. And I, I wish I could sort of recite that scene better because I, I think it's such a powerful scene when they come back together and they say, you know what, 
past is past. I'm just, you know, I'm just glad that you're alive and that you're here. And it's it's that moment that the doctor comes out and says the great rage you see in him is gone and and just the king is left. And again, there's so much to explore with the king there that you you know, that's an entirely different that I'd I'd love to journey down an, another day. And I, I could so easily get distracted with that because but yeah, that relationship is just is is magnificent. He understood Shakespeare understood relationships between people. Everybody talked about his his writing and how beautiful his writing was. And it was. I mean, you know, there's that famous Rob Miles who brought it up to me the first time years ago, which is um sort of putting Plutarch side by side with um, I think it's Cleopatra and comparing the writing. And it's it's exactly it's, he's he's stolen, he's stolen everything. He's stolen the but he's changed the language and that, that is incredible is is the language but it's 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 the way he wrote but it's also the people he created that were just he he brought them off the page in a way that i don't see any other writers of the era do and i think that's what yeah again that's what makes him just so incredible and yeah that's i think that's why cordelia means so i mean obviously i have personal reasons why Cordelia means you know why I love Cordelia so much but um she's top of been top of my bucket list to play one day or just produce a play with her you know yeah she's a brilliant role and in fact I would argue that she's the heart of King Lear she is and and I think that's mentioned in academia isn't it she's sort of she she is his heart Exactly, yeah. I have a quote here that I just wanted to mention, might give us some ideas, from William Hazlitt's book, Characters of Shakespeare's Plays, on which this season is based. In the present play, that which aggravates the sense of sympathy in the reader and of uncontrollable anguish in the swollen heart of Lear is the petrifying indifference, the cold, calculating, obdurate selfishness of his daughters. His keen passions seem wetted on their stony hearts. The contrast would be too painful, the shock too great, but for the intervention of the fool, whose well-timed levity comes in to break the continuity of feeling when it can no longer be born, and bring into the play again the fibres of the heart, just as they are growing rigid from overstrained excitement. The imagination is glad to take refuge in the half-comic, half-serious comments of the fool, just as the mind, under the extreme anguish of a surgical operation, vents itself in sallies of wit. Now, if we think of Cordelia as the fool as well, if we think of her as doing something similar to Kent, being banished, but yeah, remaining out of her love for her father and her concern, because she's evidently concerned about what her sisters will do to him. And you then consider in conjunction with her, I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. Yes, that, that line. So it's it, Yeah, it's so powerful. And that's that line. That's the line I was searching for. I cannot keep my heart into my mouth. I love your lordship. Oh, I can't remember the words, but it's, you know, no more, no less. You know, it's, it's, it, of course I love you. I can't, I can't put it into words. I, you know, I, I, I'm starting to convince myself that I relate to her because I sometimes struggle with language. I often find that I can't find the words that I want to. I find it easier to write them down but that's um you know talking about a different character that I relate to but maybe that's why I chose her as my favorite because because I relate to her and I think that you know there's a sort of commonality in relating to a character and loving them it is that sense of yeah I think I think she's just an incredible 
incredible human being who goes on a great journey. And and I played her actually when I was at drama school, um, just in a scene study. And we ended up not really not cutting any any of Cordelia's lines because she's in the play so very little. And we end, we ended the play at the reunion. So instead of having the sort of traditional ending where they both die, we ended the play to make it sort of short enough for as, as they call it a scene study in drama school when Cordelia and Leah reunite. And it was really, it was really lovely to experience the peak of that relationship and to go on that journey with her and without the fool. Uh, the fool was played by somebody very different, very, very clownish, in fact. And having that sort of, but having that journey to go on with Cordelia and and saying, okay, well, what is driving me? And it's that that relationship, that that need to connect with her father and that need to say, okay, I'm I'm going to go on this journey with you. I want to, because I, I need I need for me for my closure to. I I can't find the words, but yeah, the, she's just yeah, she's magnificent. I think and. She's so very, she's the best of humanity. Maybe that's what it is. She's she's, she's what we strive to be. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, you mentioned ending King Lear on a positive note with the reunion. That's been done a lot because people, some people just can't come to grips with the terrible, terrible tragedy of the ending of Lear. I mean, there was Naomi Tate's version where Cordelia marries Edgar. Yes. And even even Shakespeare's sources, they had happy endings too. I wouldn't be surprised. It's more powerful to have that ending. It, it really packs a punch. It, you know, it, it feels every time that show ended, I saw it quite a lot this summer. It it feels like you're being punched in the gut every time you, every time you see that, every time you get to that ending, no matter how many times I saw it, it felt like just, it felt like a wound but in the most beautiful way and 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 I love I love the happy ending but it doesn't quite pack that same punch and I think that was you know another great thing about Shakespeare is he didn't shy away from those sort of pain that that the painfulness of of life life can be tragic and facing that is incredibly difficult and he 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 would he would have his audience is facing that on a regular basis so it's interesting to see to, to think about the fact that he chose to make that and why you know why did why did Shakespeare choose to make that ending a tragedy as opposed to a sort of happier more contented ending with the two sisters dying good wins out over evil you could very easily make that ending good wins Cordelia ends up happy married to France or Edgar and you everything gets wrapped up in a nice sort of almost nice neat little bow because you do still have two dead sisters who are two, also two very interesting characters that y- you could look at in depth and you could say, well, they weren't wicked and immoral. They were just slightly self-serving and frustrated with a quite a selfish father raised potentially as you think of Cordelia as potentially the favorite child and the two other siblings as, as the sort of snubbed ones because they were never pretty enough, this enough, that enough. Uh, and how difficult that might have been to grow up with, and so might you know might have been very difficult for them. And then their only way of regaining control of that is to take that situation and potentially work in something that would win that that would end in their favour. And that sort of led them down a path in Shakespeare. It sort of started. It's, it's a small in any story really. You start 
something rolling and then it goes faster and faster and faster and out of control and you get to sort of halfway or three quarters of the way through a Shakespeare play and these characters are a, a, a spinning round down this track at almost an uncontrollable pace until boom, the end comes. And that's it. And you can't do anything about it because that they've gone down that path. And it, it it just goes faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. And you know, the sort of second half of a of a Shakespeare play just feels like a something that's moving faster and faster and faster until it, you know, the play just goes and then it's over. And you're sort of like, what what just happened in the past? You know, he'll he'll have a really big long scene. Everything happens at once. Yeah. And now I think we'll be moving on to a play with a happier ending, but also with some interesting relationships between, well, there's a definitely one intriguing relationship between parent and child. So the next question is about the character you feel you identify the most. So who is this character and why? Um, so anybody who follows me on Twitter is, is, is going to know what the answer to this is. And anyone who's spoken to me for about five minutes generally knows that Park is is generally the character that I relate to the most. I I have so many thoughts about Park, just chaotic, mischief-loving, sort of Peter Pan-like character almost. You know, he's a, he's a child. He, he just wants to have fun, doesn't really understand that having fun at other people's cost is maybe not the best thing, but he doesn't really cause any serious harm. He, you know, he turns somebody into a, he turns somebody's head into a donkey. He sort of, casts some charms at the behest of Oberon to make people fall in love with each other and he accidentally makes the wrong people fall in love with each other but he doesn't necessarily do it on purpose but he thinks it's great it's all good fun it's quite funny to watch you know these these people sort of struggle yeah. and then mess with them a little bit and mess with the uh, messing with the mechanicals and yeah up and down up and down I will lead you up and down I'm feared in field and town goblin lead them up and down I just yeah, it's it's funny because a friend of mine thinks that Puck is evil. And I think that's a really fair, you know, he's a goblin, he's a hobgoblin. In in sort of law, in fairy tale law, hobgoblins are generally sort of the evil sprites. And he does but he's he's to me, he's always just been that mischievous character that doesn't quite just blurs the lines between right and wrong a little bit. And doesn't mean necessarily to cause harm in a in a damaging permanent way he just wants to have a bit of fun and oh i suppose it's at at the cost of at the cost of a few people but no one no one's dying no one's and yeah i mean you know you can really look into that relationship between him and oberon um cuz where does puck come from it doesn't spring from nowhere oberon has taken him on why has Oberon taken him on? Where you know where are his sort of parents or creators, as it were? I don't know. You know, it depends. Is is Puck a changeling? Is is you know he had no he never had so sweet a change change uh, the changeling is the is the boy uh, that Oberon is after. You can compare. Them. Does Oberon seek these like proteges? Was Puck one of his former proteges? Yeah, and why is Puck then facilitating this obtaining of another? protege or is he and is it you know is it is it sort of like a, is is there a does he does he want a gang of sort of proteges yeah yeah is it like the lost boys yeah yeah I mean you can look at it like the lost boys and obviously um you know any any sort of true not true Shakespeare nerd but a lot of Shakespeare nerds know Shakespeare's relationship with the um young boy from the sonnets 
which you know we don't have to get into but you know Shakespeare did have relationships that were with with other you know with with other men and women and and you know what does that say about his relationship Oberon's relationship with Puck and yeah and, and what where does Puck come from why is he so mischievous mischievous loving is that does that come from Oberon does that just come from the fact that he's a hobgoblin does that does that come from living in the forest and being a bit bored of and I just there's so many questions that come up with Puck and he's he's just he's fun and he yeah he's like Peter Pan and I just one thing Hazlitt wrote which I really loved with Oberon and his fairies we are launched at once into the empire of the butterflies I thought that was a great way of putting it it is it is because it is the empire of the butterflies it's sort of you know you have this lord monarch and you have his sort of people and so you know Titania has her train and Oberon has his train and yeah you know the dynamic between the two and and how do you choose sides you know are Titania's all female and Oberon's all male why is that or is it is it a mix of both obviously in Shakespeare's day they all would have been played by men exactly and Puck as well many people take him to be a male character but in a similar way to Ariel I think Puck's got this kind of androgyny in a sense yeah, that yeah, and I think Puck is often often played by a woman these days. You know, you do you you do get male Pucks and 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 you you get both, but that's one of those characters that is often played by both men and women, and it's often played by those and you know by by women who are slightly androgynous, uh, and I think that's maybe why I was drawn to him because I, I you know I I love that sort of sense of Puck is neither man nor woman. He's a he's a sprite. They are a sprite and, and they are, I think that's wonderful. Just not having, you know, not having to behave and Puck doesn't necessarily behave like a man or a woman. He, just, he doesn't, he is him, himself in every way, shape or form. And I think that's the other reason I love him is Puck is simply Puck. He's never, he, he's never, he never tries to be anybody but himself. And I love that. I, I think I, you know, I relate to that because I, I cannot be anybody but myself. I, I, I've never been able to be anybody but myself you know all these people say oh you know I used to be like this but you know I, I actually realized that I was like this now I mean obviously we grow up we, re- we realize more about ourselves but I've never been able to hide who I am my personality it just it comes out as soon as me. and I love that about Puck is he's just he just is he's so blatant himself and you just accept him for that you accept him for the chaotic and he's, you know, he's often everybody's favorite. Kids love him because he's, he's a fairy, and adults still like him because he, he's, he's mischievous, and he's that side of us that we sort of, you have to put away as you get older. You know, as you're a grown up, you have to be more mature and more grown up and more. And I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not. I'm quite. I've always been quite childlike, always chaotic, always looking for the next sort of joke. I, I don't play pranks. I've, I, you know, I've moved that move past that stage in, in my life but I I will sort of I'll crack a joke at any opportunity and I'll uh I can't I can't help who I am I can't help being quite an excitable person you know pe- people often find a big personality quite overwhelming but he's beloved on stage and he's beloved by us yes and I love that because as as somebody who I think has struggled with having quite a overbearing excitable personality seeing him beloved on a stage is is quite nice for me because I see I see I've always seen myself in Puck I, I I 
picked I picked Midsummer Night's Dream up. It was the the first play I read in sixth grade um, when I was about ten. And I, I understood the whole thing because again I had a great teacher. She talked us through. It. We got up, we acted it out, and I remember my friend and I sitting at a table and watching various productions and thinking Puck was the greatest thing that we'd ever seen. I st I still hold to that. I just I. I, I, that mischievous sense, that sense of adventure, that sense of fun is 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 who I am at, at the core. I just I just want fun. Um, and I I love that that's so acceptable in a midsummer night's dream because oftentimes in society, having a big bouncy, chatty, excitable personality is not so well looked on and people sort of mm, struggle with that which is fine you know we live in a society we live in a country where to be reserved is oh the british stiff off her lip yes exactly and i i am not that you know restraint is such a foolish concept you know the idea of hiding how much life and everything means to you how much you enjoy yourself that's foolish yeah exactly and 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 i think it's yeah i think it is foolish to sort of try and hide who you are um and you know, Puck isn't one of those characters like Cordelia that's rich in in depth and character and heart. It's just him. He's not, and that's okay. Yeah, he's not trying to be taken seriously. He's just there to have fun. And we talked about fools. Yeah, because whilst we have Bottom, the obvious fool who's humiliated, we have Puck as the more satirical yeah. fool making comments on the action, like "Lord, what fools these mortals be!" Exactly, and they are. They're acting like idiots. They're fighting over. You know, they're fighting over a woman when, you know, clearly Demetrius, uh, say what you will about the ending and Demetrius being charmed at the end. Demetrius clearly had feelings for Helena at some point. Um, and so that, you know, they're all behaving very ridiculous or at least in a way that the fairies feel is ridiculous, but perhaps mirrors what's got in a, in, in a way what's going on with Oberon and Titania. And again, that's Shakespeare holding up a mirror and Puck holds up that mirror as well, you know, yeah, what fools these mortals be and and how can I have fun with them? Because, and it's it's also taking control. Oberon sort of is the puppet master of, of the stories. He he controls a lot of the action. You, know, you cast, you know, this spell on this person and you, but Puck exercises his own control and says, I'm going to turn this person into a donkey's head and I'm going to make sure that he's around when Titania wakes up to see, you know, and he's the first person that she sees. And Puck takes his own control and his own power. And he has his, his, a funny little power. It's a brilliant power. It is a power. It is a real power. And actually he does, he does everything at Oberon's behest, but he's the one who does everything. Exactly. And that power, it's not a power that's, you know, serious. It's not one making life or death decisions. It's one that's solely there to have fun. And that's so refreshing to see on stage. It is. And, and you know, so much of theatre and writing is, is about something important happening, something major, life-changing, heart-wrenching. And, and obviously, I just talked about how much I loved the heart-wrenchingness of Leah. But I also really enjoy those times when you can just, you know, and the fact that Puck just does it for fun. And that's that's it. He's yeah. He's not killing people. He's not hurting people. And it, you know, yeah, he's, a couple of people might get injured along the way, but nothing serious. He's just there. He just wants to have fun, and it's so refreshing to see on stage. You know, sometimes when I'm looking for for the next book to read, I, I look for something that's not too serious because I want to break from 
the seriousness of the world. I, I, I'm studying social work. I work in substance misuse. It's all very serious. It's all very, it can be life and death. It, or Even if it's not life and death, it's all very hard. And so to step back from that and, and look at a character who just sort of takes everything as it comes and has fun with it. I've been given this role, these tasks to do, you know, charm these people's eyes, make Titania fall in love with somebody so I can get the boy. Okay, this is what I've been given. Well, I'm going to have some fun with it because why not? Exactly. And I mean, at the end, Puck doesn't even care what people think of him. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. Think that we were just a dream. I honestly don't care. Yeah, I don't care. Then, of course, yeah. Like, I hope you enjoyed it. If we yeah. take the serpent's tongue, we'll make amends along. Yeah. Else the puck alive. But it's very, it's very jovial. It's very like, yeah, I know you liked it. I know you liked it. I know you liked it. Like, you know, this has been a lot of fun. It's it's a nice distraction. You've had fun. We've had a laugh. Like, let's put our hands together. Let's celebrate the fact that we had fun. You know, give me give me a bit of applause. Give me your hands if we be friends and Robin shall restore amends. You know, it's it's that you know, we've come together on this journey. It hasn't been particularly stressful. So let's, you know, we've just had a bit of fun. And and again, like it's that Peter Pan, that youthful, sprightly energy that sort of doesn't it doesn't get old. And it's one of the reasons I think people put on Midsummer Night's Dream over and over again and why it does draw an audience because yes, there are a lot of darker undertones. There's, you know, there's the fact that Demetrius doesn't necessarily come out of his charm at the at the end. He's, his eyes are still charmed. Yes, there's the fact that Oberon charmed Titania and stole a boy from out, out from under her as, you know, you've got potential slavery undertones there. But for the most part, it's one of the lightest, most problem-free plays, and it's it's lovely. Yeah. Speaking of problem-free, gonna go for the opposite now, in the opposite direction, and talk about a problematic character, a character that is deeply flawed, but you really can't help but loving him. Oh, this is a fun one. So I I I did feel bad because it's it's again it's another popular one. I mean, I, you know, I've read the whole canon. I do know all the characters, but, um, and that, you know, and there are some great ones, but, but Lady M from the Scottish play, I just, again, she's, she, she's so driven. So I, when, when I did my podcast, I, I was trying to find a way to let, to make her relatable to a modern audience, to, to sort of people who, who teenagers, again, teenagers, like, like you're trying to engage who may look at these characters and say, well, why do I care about them? She has drive. She knows what she wants and she will stop at nothing to get it. Doesn't, doesn't matter what it takes. I don't care how many bodies I have to tread on. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get the throne. And I love that about her. And I love the ability that she has to just be like, Duncan, welcome to my house i'm a host you're gonna have the best time it's gonna be great you're gonna die but like no one's gonna suspect me until like the bodies start stacking up i'm the least because i'm a woman no one's gonna suspect me and she takes control yeah. of that whole situation she does she and she uses her position as a woman masterfully when they find out duncan's dead she she swoons faints yeah, she faints. She's like, oh, you know, what's what's something that I can do that nobody, nobody will suspect me? I know, I'm going to faint. And they're all like, oh my God, look to the lady. Yeah. 
and all of their attention suddenly goes on the fact that oh poor lady poor lady m she's fainted what what are we going to do about this oh yeah nobody suspects her um and I fell in love with her. I mean, I, I hated her growing up. I was like, oh, she's evil. She's one of those evil characters. I'm supposed to not like her. And then I saw a production in Stratford, Ontario, played by somebody who's sort of short and blonde and without her costume, had my casting. She's a petite blonde woman. They put sort of a dark wig on her, dark long wig on her. And she she played this Lady M that I'd never seen, which was this very sweet, disarming, friendly woman somebody who you you would absolutely go to the house and feel welcome and it totally took me by surprise because I was so used to looking at these one-sided characters and I sort of seeing them as villains and I'm not supposed to like them because they're villains that was the first time I realized actually no you can like the villain and you can relate to the villain and you can sort of understand their motives and and there is no such thing as good and bad and black and white and if you take a step back you sort of again you understand I mean obviously no killing is not good you shouldn't kill the king to become queen and king but if you've had a difficult past if you've had a rocky start in life and this is the one thing you want good for you that you're going to do whatever it takes to get it and again I'm not promoting murder (laughs) of course of course I love her drive. Yeah, her ability to keep a cool head. Because when Macbeth has like done the deed, he's he is a wreck. He he's got blood on his hands. He's got he's still carrying the dagger. She's like, why the hell have you brought this dagger back? Like, what are you doing? But at the same time, she has a sensitive side. Yeah, she's like, I I would have done it myself, but he looked so much like my father, as he slept. Yes, and 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 she's at some point, she says, I I you know I've I've given suck. I felt what it is to to have a baby, to hold them, to love the baby that milks me. I would, while he was smiling in my face, have dashed his brains had I as so sworn as you had sworn to this. And it's at that point uh, in the folio that the language changes from um, thee, thy, to you, your, or the opposite. I forget which way. And I had a teacher, and you can't, this doesn't always work, but it's an interesting thought process to say, um, when it's one, it's personal. Like I, it's been too long since I've actually been on a stage and, and tried this in practice. So forgive me, I, I might get it backwards. But when it's the thy, it's very personal. It's 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 intimate, and so we're moving closer on the stage, uh, and it, it's intimate. It's an intimate way of speaking, and you have this in other languages. In French, you have vous and tu, and she stops using thee and thine and starts using you and yours, which emotionally creates a distance between her and, and and her husband. And I think that's, I mean, that's awful, but it's brilliant. That sort of, you know what? I don't respect you anymore. And so, with, you know, there's a, there's a separation. Yeah. And, and like I said with Cordelia, it's, it's a theory. It's not like like so much of Shakespeare. It's not something that you can live or die on. It's not something that I'm gonna, you know, go to the grave and swear this is how you do it. But it's it's an interesting way of looking at it, and I love that she's like, you know what? I'm gonna distance myself from you because you are not gonna help me get what I want. This this is what we've decided what we want together, and you're chickening out. So I'm gonna keep going on this path because this is what I want. 
and I'm not going to let your fear, your panic, your conscience stop me. Yeah. And it's really interesting because she talks about Macbeth being too full of the milk of human kindness. Yeah. When I think of that that idea of, you know, giving suck to a child, the mother's milk. Yeah. She's degrading Macbeth when she talks about him like that. She's talking about him as childlike. Yes. You know, yeah, you're right. The milk of human kindness, mother's milk, is is in him. So he's he's being not just infantilized, but feminized, which again is in that time is sort of low. Yeah, well, that was insulting to the very fragile male ego mm-hmm. of Elizabethan Jacobean times. Her whole line about, you know, pouring my spirits into thine ear. I mean, th- that whole idea, it's, it's weird, isn't it? To think of, you know, channeling her thoughts into Macbeth. And yet it almost makes you think of you know, the poisoning of King Hamlet, you know, poison in his ear. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the, the injection kind of, of evil. And, and the fact that that goes in, that that enters through the ear and like, what did that mean in Elizabethan England? What, what was significant about hearing things or taking things in through the ear versus another place? what was significant about ears. I mean, that's something I I actually hadn't thought about that, but that's an interesting thing to look up. Shakespeare, in many ways, as a whole, tries to present her as the villain, but he gives enough to show us that actually there's a lot more to her. There's so much more. Yeah, there is. And and I just, like, I do love that speech. I, I've always loved that speech of, like, I have given suck and known what tis to love the babe that milks me. Like there is pain. There is pain that, that at least, you know, what I see in that is 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 like I, you know, I've what happened to that child? Did it did it die? Did she kill it? I, I imagine that, you know, in in the story I tell myself is that the baby died and that sort of might have broken something in her. And I've I've never experienced the loss of a, of a child in my life. I've never had that. But but I do know people who have struggled with that and what that can do to a person. It can completely change someone's heart. Yeah. Another line that always struck out to me in, in that play was the doctor quite later on when, when Lady Macbeth is losing her mind. The doctor, you know, that Macbeth says, do something, doctor, do something. Why can't you do something? And the doctor says, I cannot minister to a mind diseased. Which is fascinating because it's something it shows that Shakespeare has an awareness of the fact that there is mental illness but the fact that they didn't have the skill the knowledge the understanding to deal with that but he, he knew it was there and it's not something that's often talked about and again I'm not a scholar I don't I don't know maybe it was talked about but it, as far as general history is concerned mental health wasn't really a thing until quite recently but you here here you have Shakespeare talking about a mind diseased I cannot minister to a mind diseased this disease is beyond my practice he talks about the limits of contemporary medicine of what the medical profession could do and that yeah that is not that's not expected that's something quite different to what you might think about because Shakespeare does include the odd doctor in his canon. But yeah, I think, yeah, the doctor in Macbeth is one of the most interesting. And yeah, Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking. Yes. That's brilliant. Yeah. Blood, you know, can't get... And it's interesting that they both hallucinate. Yes. 
when when they're in their mind, they both again, it's that it's in their mind. They both see the damage that they've caused, and that's almost you know a pre-punishment, a pre-death punishment, and and it it's fascinating. Yes, um, I just yeah yeah you can construe the appearance of Banquo as either an omen that you know Macbeth's days are almost numbered, or you can as yeah the creation of his mind that he interprets that way, and that's what causes him to go down this spiral. Yeah, yeah. The guilt, it's the guilt manifesting itself. Yeah, it's similar to like in Richard III in The Tent Before the Battle. The ghosts of all the people he's murdered show up to haunt him. Yes, it's one of my favourite scenes, partially because I played one of the princes that came back to haunt him. I loved that. It was such a great moment to just come back and be like, this this is what you've done. Um, and And, you know, it's not exactly the same thing, but in Hamlet you have the play within a play that creates, it doesn't exactly haunt, but sort of has that same effect for the for Claudius that haunts him, that makes him aware, that makes him aware of what he's done. And it it's, yeah, it's Shakespeare's, again, his his understanding of, of, of people. Uh, I've just thought of something. So when the witches give Macbeth and Banquo their prophecies, they tell Macbeth that he will be a king, but that Banquo will father kings. Now, Macbeth tells everything to Lady Macbeth in a letter. And this idea that they've lost a child. Yeah. How do you, th- like, what What would be going through her mind when she reads that Banquo's had this prophecy that he will father kings? Oh, that's got to be such a twist of the knife in the back, you know? Because Banquo's their friend. He's, you know, he's, he's, and it's interesting actually, because in the original, I, you, you talked about the original sources for, for Lear and in, in the original sources of Macbeth, I believe Banquo was somehow involved in all of the deaths. And I could be wrong on that, but I, I mean, I, I remember reading somewhere that in the original Banquo was one of the, you know, Banquo was in on it with Macbeth and then, you know, they sort of turned on each other. And the fact that Shakespeare changed it to have Banquo and his son be the sort of, for lack of a better word, the good guys, and the Macbeths being the the foes, the you know the antagonists, uh, the protagonists is the, uh, the pro antagonists, yeah, yeah. And it's again, it's one of those sort of choices that Shakespeare made when he went to to write the play to say, okay, actually, what might make this more interesting is if you have Banquo as as the Macbeth's foil, the fact that he fathered sons. Yeah, and obviously that was a nod to King James. That was a nod to the man who, yeah. you know, he claimed that his lineage came from Banquo. Yeah, and the man who was on the throne. So, you know, keep keep my picture up. You know, yeah, I, I like you. Lip service. Once again, lip service. Yeah, lip service, exactly. Um, you know, he was a politicist. He, he knew, you know, he... He understood the politics of the time and he knew how to say things subtly without rocking too many boats. Yeah. So can you imagine Lady Macbeth reading these lines? Macbeth will be a king, sure, but Banquo is the one who's going to father kings. And yeah. She could read that and think, okay, so he's going to become king, but we're never going to have children. We're never going to have children. We can't have children. And again, the anguish that that must feel to somebody who wants children. And again, not all women want children, and but but for somebody who wants children and can't have them, that is such a 
hard thing to have to come to terms with and to know again that you can't father kings even you know even if everything worked out perfectly and like you know the king died of natural causes and his children decide actually we don't want to be kings for x y and z reasons so we will pass it down to macbeth and and everything worked out sort of perfectly that way the fact that again they could not sire children but then again is it is it a self-fulfilling prophecy is it the fact that they did all of this that meant that they could not have children exactly and it's one of those questions that will never really get to answer yeah you chose great characters here alice so thank you so much for bringing them to the table I will say, you know, a special shout out to Dr. Butts, who I do always say is is my all time favorite Shakespeare character from Henry VIII. Um, he's a character that has one line and is often cut. Um, but I just I felt like it was important to mention him because I have numerous times said that he's my favorite in the entire canon, simply because his name is Dr. Butts. And that's very funny, which goes to, again, Puck is the character I relate to the most. Dr. Butts is my favorite character because his name is Butts. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you, Annabelle. So how about we tell the listeners where they can find you, what you're going to be up to? So currently, just working on my dissertation, working on getting through my master's, you can you can find you can find me at the Globe. I'll be there most of the summer stewarding. I'll be there at least three times a I'll week. I'll be there. You can find uh, Socially Distant Cymbeline on YouTube and Literally Puck is my Twitter. I, I, uh, I tell you about my podcasts, but unfortunately... It was so long ago that the name has slipped my mind. That's okay. You can tell me after. I'll put it in the show notes. Brilliant. Thank you, Annabelle. Thanks again, Alice. This has been wonderful. Well, listeners, this has been a joy, and I'll see you all in the Teenager's Take. Welcome to the Teenager's Take. Alice and I could honestly talk forever, and if I do say so myself, we are a force to be reckoned with in the Groundling section at Shakespeare's Globe, so do join us this summer. But for now, let's chat the fool stroke Cordelia, Puck and Lady Macbeth. So Cordelia and the fool, if you consider them as played by the same actor, portray a wonderful duality. Look at the fool's song, for instance. Gillian Woods pointed out the fool's sharp critique of Lear's behaviour in the lyrics, then they for sudden joy did weep, and I for sorrow sung, that such a king should play Bo Peep and go the fools among. She says that those who weep in happiness are the daughters that the fool claims Lear has turned into thy mothers. By contrast, the fool sings in sorrow that Lear has handed authority over to his children. If we think of Cordelia as the fool, then we can consider the second line as one of even more intense filial sorrow as a reflective lament on being unable to heave her heart into her mouth when she had the chance, and by that I don't mean flattery, I mean expressing what she really felt for Lear and the danger she felt that he was in. And it also conveys an idea of the tunefulness of silence and nothing. Overall, if you consider the two as part of a cohesive whole, many magnificent instances of emotional potential present themselves, and a new parallel emerges between Edgar lovingly deceiving his blinded father and Cordelia gently leading hers along the way, despite the pain he has caused her. As individuals, each character is fascinating, but together, they're transformative. Puck? Well, what can I say? He's... he's fantastic. 
he dances along the trials and tribulations of the mortals with wisecracks and magical influence, scattering love and idleness and randomly giving out donkey's heads. <laughs> Actually, that's an interesting point. When Oberon first describes love and idleness, he tells the story of Cupid aiming one of his arrows at a fair vestal throned by the west, but young Cupid's fiery shaft was quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the bolt of Cupid fell upon a little western flower. While the flower has the power to make mortals and fairies, apparently, madly dote upon the next live creature they see, I think the source of its power is, in its essence, from Cupid's error. The flower, then, is in itself a troublemaker, since even if Puck doled it out correctly, its power comes from the misdirection of love. <laughs> and if anything, that's another reason Puck can have so much fun with it. From his medieval origins as Robin Goodfellow, his name implying the Fey folk's love of flattery instead of actual goodness, Puck both relies on our good favour and fully expects it from us bringing us along on the journey of mayhem while criticising us as well as his fellow characters when he says, Lord, what fools these mortals be. Fairies, it seems, just want to have fun. Now Hazlitt wrote of Lady Macbeth, whose obdurate strength of will and masculine firmness give her the ascendancy over her husband's faltering virtue. She at once seizes on the opportunity that offers for the accomplishment of all their wished-for greatness, and never flinches from her object till all is over. The magnitude of her resolution almost covers the magnitude of her guilt. She is a great bad woman whom we hate, but whom we fear more than we hate. She does not excite our loathing and abhorrence like Regan and Goneril. She is only wicked to gain a great end, and is perhaps more distinguished by her commanding presence of mind and inexorable self-will which do not suffer her to be diverted from a bad purpose, when once formed, by weak and womanly regrets, than by the hardness of her heart or want of natural affections. A great bad woman whom we fear even more than we hate? I think not. But he's right that she's wicked only to achieve her goal, and it's deliciously exciting to analyse the psychological, moral, ethical state of mind that allows her firmness and steadfast adherence to the witch's prophecy. Indeed, her evil, as such, stems not from a want of natural affections. She has a heart and a mind that overwhelm her in the end, as discussed, once the throne has been achieved and the difficulty is holding on to it. As also mentioned, the prophecy's addendum regarding Banquo fathering kings must be ever in the back of her mind. Those weak and womanly regrets that Hazlitt talks of are dealt with early on, when she calls upon the spirits to unsex her. But we can look at this craving for power as a replacement for the family she never gets to have. By striving to separate herself from the biological sex she was born with, she seeks to cut herself away from the gendered expectations of a married woman in her position. To bear a child. Macbeth's anxieties about Banquo's prophecy lead him to focus heavily on Fleance's escape when he wanted him dead with his father, but Lady Macbeth's pain can be summarised in her acknowledgement that she knows what it is to love the child that she feeds. What happened to their child is perhaps the greatest question of the play, but we cannot forget that once again Lady Macbeth is more than a mother or a wife. She is a woman and she uses her femininity to her advantage as a tool to her power. 
and that makes her one of the most interesting Shakespearean characters in the canon, in my opinion. Wow, I am having so much fun with these characters and ideas. Thank you again for a brilliant episode, Alice. Do check out the podcast at Teen Take Shacks on Twitter and A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare on Instagram. And I'll see you next week for the next episode.